she really helped set the mode for so many of, you know, what we call the tropes, right? The patterns and the images that we associate with romance, even though parts of it become passe, as you say, um, as the past always does, you know, but I think what's also remarkable to me is how modern she was too. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Movies change the culture. Two examples in this episode. Hilary Hallett on The Woman Who Put Sex Appeal in the Movies. But she had to call it It. And how Hollywood taught the world how to go to the movies. Ross Melnick on the theaters that were Hollywood's embassies. How much it does Nitrateville Radio have? Come up and see our ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts sometime, or even leave your own. Thanks. I read in the paper the other day that it is really just the same thing as sex appeal. Now, is that really true? Well, you see, if that were really the case, every good-looking woman in the entire world would have it. Whereas I suppose, if one counted, there's about one in every 10,000. Have you ever seen a tiger in the zoo? Oh, yes, rather. Well, now, look the next time you go and watch how it lies there, utterly indifferent. Doesn't care an atom who's passing, who's going to give it a biscuit or get away in fear. It just stays there lazy, looking straight into the eyes of whoever is looking at it. That's why when all these people write to me and say, how can I acquire it? Well, I give them whatever rules I can think of by trying to tell them not to be self-conscious. But how in the world can they have it if they're trying to have it? Talk all you want about different aspects of film theory, but it was Eleanor Glynn who zeroed in on the essential point of the movies. We go to see attractive people being gorgeous in images and irresistible in motion. She called the sexual charisma of movie stars it, because any more explicit term would have gotten her in trouble. But we all knew what she meant. But who was the woman behind it and famously scandalous novels like Three Weeks? That's the question explored by Hilary A. Hallett, Associate Professor of History and American Studies and Director of the Center for American Studies at Columbia University, in her book Inventing the It Girl, How Eleanor Glynn Created the Modern Romance and Conquered Early Hollywood, from Liverite and Norton. I spoke with her from New York. What a great idea for a book. People who listen to this podcast or go to Nitrateville will know the name. They've probably seen her in It, but what do they really know about her? What prompted you to want to write about her? Way back to when I was doing the research for my dissertation, which became my first book, 
Go West Young Woman, The Rise of Early Hollywood. Uh, I, I That was when I first encountered Glenn, and I met her through, you know, really her first protege, Gloria Swanson. Uh, and it was sort of Gloria Swanson's, she's got a great memoir called Swanson on Swanson, but also working in her archive, I came across a few letters, and it was just clear how much Glenn had influenced her and sort of been a mentor of hers and how seriously she had taken Glenn's influence and sort of working with her as a young 21-year-old actress who was really just first becoming a star. So, so Swanson kind of attuned me to her. And you know how once you're attuned to someone, then you start to say, I noticed, you know, she was propping up in all these memoirs that I was reading uh, and when I went to, at the time, you know, this is a while ago, again, when I'm researching my dissertation, uh, the secondary literature to find out more about her, she was mostly treated as a joke, right? As this very eccentric, older, red-haired, fake-dyed, red-haired uh, person. And it didn't comport with the more primary source accounts that I had been reading, right? So, so there was this kind of contradiction um, although, to be fair, you know, most of the accounts were very brief, too. So, you know, they just didn't have much to say about her. But what they had to say was fairly derisive, I would say. Um, and so I went and did a little bit more sort of digging. Uh, again, right, still writing my dissertation about Eleanor Glenn. And I found out very quickly that, you know, she had just led this incredible, incredible life even before she ever set foot in Hollywood in 1920. And that, in fact, she was brought there as this already enormous celebrity author. She was even more incredible than someone like Swanson, I think, even fully realized, right? She kind of ran away with a chapter in that (laughs) book, or what became my first book. Uh, and my advisor at the time, who's still a great friend, who's a biographer, mostly a uh, cultural historian named David Nassau, you know, I still remember him reading that chapter and saying, okay, you know, Hillary, you got to like take some of this out, save it. You can write something about Eleanor Glenn later. Um, but, you know, she's taking over this chapter too much. Right. <laughs> so then it was kind of always my intention to see if I could write a biography about her and you know there was a biography about her and her sister who was also this kind of incredible woman a dress designer named Lucy Jeff Gordon um, who survived you know the thinking of the Titanic and had you know had a very dramatic story and so there had been this biography written about the two of them that was written by a fashion writer and so I felt like the stuff about Lucy was actually better yeah. Um, and it, it had some great stuff in it. It wasn't sourced. It had no notes. And so in any, in any case, just to make a long story short, I spent a summer in England, you know, with my family living in Oxford, trying to see if I could write this biography. And it was only sort of at the last minute when a descendant of Glenn's kind of came through with access to some of her diaries and a giant trunk that was brought from Wales of her letters. Um that I decided that I would actually do it because I didn't want to write it purely out of the professional archive of Glenn's that exists at Reading uh, because it's, it, while, you know, really useful, it, it, it had vacuumed out all personal, um, you know, materials. And so it would have had to have been a very different kind of book. Right. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, what it turns out in your book is really that what we know about her is sort of like the last five minutes of her 15 minutes of fame. You know, the Hollywood period, right. you know, is is just one piece of it. Uh, and as with so many things from the silent era, as soon as the era changes, it's very, very out of fashion. You know, like you say, right. you know, it's th- the the cover of three weeks is good for a gag in things. I think there must be a Warner Brothers cartoon where I've seen it. Uh, you know, the, one of those ones where it's all book covers. It, it stands for the sort of person who would read such a dirty book. It's like that doesn't at all give a full picture of who she was and what she accomplished in her life. Right. I love that. Um, the last five minutes of her 15 minutes of fame. That's very well put. And that's why, you know, it, it also tickles me because as the book sort of evolved, it became clear to me that the Hollywood piece of her story was really the third act, you know, in this kind of three act play. And that that was, you know, it was an incredibly important piece of her story because I do think at least in my interpretation of her life and significance and influence, she really set the mold first in her writing, but then of course in these films that she was so intimately involved with shaping, not just as, you know, a writer or, you know, the idea behind the film, but also as a, you know, someone who was really working on the set, um, you know, and shaping the mise en scene of it and, you know, standing up on the ladder, you know, and on the platforms with the director. She really helped set the mode for so many of, you know, what we call the tropes, right? The patterns and the images that we associate um, with, with romance, even though parts of it become passe, as you say, um, as the past always does. But I think what's also remarkable to me is how modern she was too. Um, and so, you know, the elements of it that become more dated in a way, you know, I think you would say the kind of what was called the Mayfair setting, right? So this sort of, you know, emphasis on dukes as heroes, um, and that kind of European, but, but again, like, you know, that's still Downton Abbey, right? Period pieces are still, um, it's a segment of the market to be sure. It's not as dominant as it was at one point, but it still hasn't lost its appeal when done well, right? Right. And she helped to popularize so many of the tropes that we still use. Rose petals on the bed and long strands of pearls and long black velvet gowns, you know, still sort of signal a woman of a certain kind of sexual self-possession, even as they're camp too. Right. Yeah, I mean, no one would, no one would seriously write a book in which uh, sex happens on a tiger skin in front of a roaring fire. But we all know where it comes from. Ultimately, I mean, exactly. that, that was certainly another another generation's idea of as good as it got. So, exactly. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking too as as I was reading it. I mean, she didn't write the book that the Sheik is based on, but you know, they're clearly writing in a in a uh, Eleanor Glynn sort of mode here. And I think in a real sense, Valentino was really the ultimate it personality, even more than Clara Bow was. And then also I was thinking like Fanny Hurst, you know, the idea of writing a book like Backstreet that's about the inner life of a mistress, you know, in her, mm-hmm. you know, hidden away in the 
department of their assignations. You know, I mean, that that's something that would not have happened, I think, without Eleanor Glynn first making that a legitimate subject to write about, you know, what a woman right. in that right. position thinks, you know, thinks about her life. Right. Right. Um, well, certainly E.M. Hall, who's the author of The Sheet, is writing very much in, you know, this what's, what, what gets called the bodice ripper, you know, kind of vein. It's impossible to always say one person invented something, uh, but certainly the success of a book like Three Weeks and then an almost equally successful book that she wrote uh, not long after called His Hour, both of which really did break the mold for how much sex could be put into a sort of mass market, mass marketed, commercially, you know, fairly widely available novel. I, I do make a pretty strong case that Eleanor Glenn certainly pushed uh, the romance novel in a much more heavily eroticized direction, right? And then, you know, many others uh, by the 1920s are doing that, like E.M. Hull. She's got her desert lover. You know, she's got her wild Russian Cossack lover, very much again in the chic mode. Um, even if she's not the author of the chic, you know, she is really, she's the, the reason that those become so popular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's tell her story and that of her sister. I mean, as you just said, the, you know, the sister is important too. In fact, you could argue which, which sister was really the, the more significant one culturally, they lived a life that itself could have come from a novel. I mean, their their real father dies when they're fairly young, and the mother remarries, and the stepfather is not exactly an ogre, but not a lot of fun either. I mean, he's he's pretty severe, and so they're they're looking from an early age for what are the options of a woman to get out of this very constrained situation and, and make a life of her own. Well, that was definitely one of, you know, the attractions, although none of Lucy's, I might've been tempted actually to try to do it as a dual biography uh, uh, again, but I did not have access to the same kind of materials okay. about Lucy. Um, and in some ways I, I'm glad it was just focused on Glenn. I mean, Lee, you know, I tried to, Lucy plays an important role, as you say, in Eleanor's life from the very beginning. And I don't think either of them would have been as successful as they were without the other. Um, I do think that they had mutually, uh, I, you know, I have two children too, who have very different personalities and I can see the way, um, you know, those differences actually allow the other one to become more of who they are. And I yeah. think that, that that was the case with both Lucy and Nell, as I call her, because that's what most people called her. Her mother was Eleanor. Uh, but in any case, as you say, you know, I love that it's almost this, it is like this storybook, you know, adventure romance, you know, these two kids, you know, who end up growing up on this island off the coast of France with this miserly stepfather, um, rather than the miserly stepmother. And so it's already kind of reversing the gender conventions yeah. um, in this fun way, because uh, that was definitely one of the things I knew when I shaped this book I wanted to play with. I didn't want it to be a doorstopper biography that tried to recount, you know, every week of her life. 
um, from birth to death. And so, you thank know, you. I do have this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you like that. Um, you know, I wanted to really shape it around the kind of reversal of the marriage plot in some ways. And so, you know, I have this short chapter that does kind of talk about her childhood, but really the book begins with Eleanor trying to get married as an almost spinster at this you know, point, because she's 28, which is very old to be getting married. Um, and which was, in fact, still basically the only way that a woman could get ahead in society, right, when she's trying to do this in the, 1870, in the 1880s. Um, as a middle-class girl, she was brought up for no, for no occupation, right, um, and really, you know, and with no dowry. Um, both sisters, you know, had that. Uh, and so both had to sort of scramble to make matches. And, you know, Lucy made a spectacularly bad match, um, which led to her having to try to become, you know, sort of self-supporting even earlier because divorce was so expensive and hard and shameful when she really did it. Uh, and, and that was what sort of propelled her in this dressmaking business. Um, Nell managed to finally make a better match, uh, in many ways, to an English landowner um, who appeared prosperous uh, when she was 28. But in fact, that match was really where I start the book is, you know, with it's called a gentleman's wife. You know, she's she sort of got the brass ring where most marriage plot stories usually end. Um, but in fact, she realizes very quickly that it's a misalliance. And they are ill-suited for each other in most ways. Um, and that's kind of, you know, where I sort of start her story as is, is, is kind of this miserably married wife. Although, on the other hand, she has managed to marry up into society and she does start to cultivate these very interesting friends. Her neighbor is a very, very famous hostess who who's actually, you know, the Prince of Wales' mistress at that point. Um, and so she's a very famous hostess who becomes, you know, really Nell's closest friend. So she has this kind of dual life where on the surface, it's all very glittering and fancy parties, but underneath she's really in this loveless marriage and, and starts to write in many ways, right. As an escape from that, she starts to write these kind of satires about that society um, that are general satires about upper-class British society, um, and they become very popular, right? And, you know, at the same time, you know, she starts to learn that her husband has actually been basically drinking and gambling most of his family's fortune away, which wasn't as great as she thought it was um, in any case. And, and so then financial necessity starts to really enter the picture as well. Um, and and then also ambition, right, eventually clearly starts to enter the picture as well, because she finds that in writing and in writing these, you know, what become very commercially successful books increasingly, you know, she's happier. <laughs> you know, it yeah. sort of gives her access to this wider world. Uh, and it introduces her to her, you know, the man who becomes sort of the love of her life, you know, her success as a writer. Um, he's clearly partially attracted to her because of that. And so it does, it opens all these opportunities and doors. And I think one of the things that I, I grew to really feel very strongly about her after working on this book, you know, for almost a decade, there were many things about her I didn't really like, um, but I grew to admire her a lot because she had this ability to 
kind of continually transform to sort of stay with the tide of, of, of the culture, you know, and with, she had this slightly visionary quality to her, right? Where you could say that about her sister and, and the sort of eye her sister had for fashion, which really helped to modernize fashion in a lot of ways in its time. But they both were women ahead of their times in, in a variety of ways. And I really came to admire, you know, the really the courage that it took to do that. Yeah, I mean, turning back to her husband, Clayton Glenn, uh, who, you know, wasn't such a bad guy, but was kind of adult and a wastrel. Not uncommon in the Edwardian era, certainly. I mean, the thing that's really striking that kind of shows the attitudes of their class uh, is when one of his friends puts the moves on you know, on Nell, and right. his his response is basically, ha, ha, "Oh, Charlie, what you know, what a player right. Charlie is. You know, he's he's certainly not right. going to like right. fight fight a duel on her behalf at that point or anything like that." Um, but no, it, no, no. And I, it's interesting. I mean, she she becomes kind of you know a, an important writer of adultery, but it sounds like she's actually pretty chaste for many years there. And she's wishing that Clayton, you know, could rouse himself to actually be a good lover or something. And it just does not happen. Exactly. Um, yeah, I know you, you got it entirely. I mean, that moment, um, you know, is, is, you know, clearly the death of their marriage in a certain way. It's the death of, of a romantic vision that she had held out, you know, cause it's important to remember, like she was more middle-class in her upbringing. And it was the middle class that most middle class girls that were most heavily sort of um, indoctrinated with an, an ethos of the importance of romantic love um, to a courtship and to a successful courtship. And upper class society, um, even though girls were, it's true, kept very ignorant until marriage, very quickly after marriage, you know, were expected to kind of follow really an older code and one that resembled in some ways more the working class code, which was that people got married for all kinds of reasons that had nothing to do with romantic love. Right. Um, And in many cases they were business arrangements and they were about family dynasties. If you were from the that class. Right. And, you know, they were until death do you part, but she, she did retain this, sort of romantic ideal of, of finding, of wanting a man that was a good lover, right? Yes. Yeah. That had like animals worth yeah. it, that had cash. She wanted the whole package. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, which, which is kind of there in Jane Austen, right? It's just that Jane Austen doesn't talk about sex. And so, you know, what Eleanor adds in her books for its day was a much franker admittance and discussion of that piece of, you know, the whole package. Because she wasn't getting it from her husband. Right, <laughs> right yeah. No, definitely not. Well, and there was also that, that ethos that married women were pretty much fair game at that point. You know, you shouldn't yes. you shouldn't yes. be diddling young virgins because that's bad for the young virgins and it's just gonna cause trouble. But the the bored wife of your you know, social equals was totally fair game. So and exactly. it seems like, you know, exactly. in a lot of ways, she, I mean, she was kind of open to non-monogamous relationships, but at the same time, you know, she, she kind of had a code about what they should be like. 
and the casualness of the Edwardian upper crust, you know, did not seem right to her. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of putting it. I mean, you know, she wasn't very moralistic um, in the sense that she certainly had close friends, like I mentioned, the Countess of Warwick being one of them, but certainly, you know, made full use of that code. And I don't think she really thought much less of them. On the one hand, on the other hand, I do think that, yes, like in her core, there was a kind of discomfort with it to the point where at least for her, the casualness with which it was treated, she felt like, I think she just realized she wasn't quite capable of, or or that's what it seems to me. I mean, it's hard as a biographer, you know, there are, I have this one journal of hers that she kept about, um, the relationship with her great love, um, you know, the Marquez of Kettleston, a man named Curzon. And that's really the only direct source I have about, I mean, a little bit on her marriage, surprisingly little in the letters, you know, shows up about their, like her actual relationship with Clayton or her feelings about Clayton. Um, You know, these are hard things, you know, to get in the past to know with certainty. Uh, But, you know, my impression is that she was, it took a lot to make her break her, like the kind of honor code that she had about sex, which was not very inclined towards what some, you know, like many multiple partners, right? Wasn't something she seemed comfortable with. All right. So, Somewhere in this time, she writes the book that she's still somewhat famous for. I see Penguin or somebody still has it available, which is Three Weeks. Tell me about Three Weeks. Yeah, so Three Weeks is still progressive, Um, really more than 100 years later. You know, it's published in 1907, so it's over 100 years old now. And it's, it's heroine is out of this class that we've been talking about, right? She's a... She's a queen. You don't know that um, until later. She's, she's only called Lady for much of the novel. Uh, and she is traveling incognito, we realize, uh, in Switzerland. And she meets this younger man. And it's, you know, really about her seduction of this younger English, handsome, sort of rather doltish, we could say again, you know, young man who's you know, supposed to be in his early 20s and has gone to Oxford and really cares mostly about, you know, sports and hunting, two things which she thought were pretty boring. <laughs> and that's like... <laughs> and got a lot of in her life, yeah. And got a lot of in her life, right? Because those were her husband's two favorite things. But in any case, you know, this guy, Paul, is his name, and it's told from his perspective, um, really has to be educated in all kinds of ways by this lady right before she will actually allow the so-called consummation of their relationship. And so one of the things that can almost be funny about it when you read it today, if you don't understand the context, it's, it's how long what she calls their wedding night, you know, is delayed in the book. And it's literally delayed, you know, more than a hundred pages after they meet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like all these long kisses and undulations on the tiger skin by the rug. and But for its day, right, in 1907, um, was very graphically descriptive, actually, right, of kind of an inner, uh, you know, what this woman 
the feelings that her behavior, you know, described in a lot of details, producing in this young man, right? Um, and sort of how he needs to learn, essentially, to channel them and to direct them to be the kind of man that she will accept as her lover. You know, what she finally does, uh, literally two-thirds of the way through the book. And then they get, like, these, you know, few blissful nights together because the whole affair, right, the title of the book's Three Weeks, it refers to the length of the affair um, between the lady and Paul. It's only these three amazing weeks that they have. Um, and, you know, one gorgeous setting after another that the lady is always designing, right, um, redesigning these hotel rooms to be even more sumptuous and fabulous and glamorous uh, for their various lovemaking, you know, scenes. So anyway, they finally consummate it. They get a few happy nights and he wakes up uh, one morning and she's gone and she's left a note saying that she's had to return to her, you know, psychotic husband of a king. He's forced her back home. Um, and then he finally, you know, he falls into a brain fever as one did in 1907, you know, <laughs> this terrible news, <laughs> you know, and when he finally comes to, he learns that she had been, become pregnant with his child, of course, she had borne the child back, you know, uh, where she was from. And then her husband had had her killed. Um, and then her husband. Her, her faithful servants had killed her husband, right? And so both both of them are dead now. And his, he knows, you know, he's comforted by the knowledge that at least their child will grow up to inherit the throne, right? And so this is the story. Um, and what made it so scandalous was not just the fact that it focused on female sort of sexuality and and tried to kind of capture that in written form more directly than any book before. What also made it really scandalous at the time, right, that it was a married woman who was doing this. And that piece of it really, Glenn found extremely hypocritical, given the prevalence of those kinds of practices, as we described in upper class society. And the fact that, you know, it was well known that that women of that class would do that kind of thing, actually. I mean, not all of it, not, you know, bear his child or, or, but sometimes they did, right? Right. I mean, after the the sort of code was that you produced an heir and a spare that were supposed to be legitimate. And after that, no one looked too closely at the younger sons, right? Um, So she found it to be, you know, extremely galling that not only was she pilloried somewhat predictably by the Anglo-American sort of literary establishment for her romantic effusions. I mean, they didn't even have words. It's actually, I do a lot with the reviews, you know, you may if you've got that part. And to me, they were just so funny. Um, you know, them trying to talk about what was wrong with this book, but without actually having words that they were allowed to use to try to talk about sex. Uh, you know, so to me, a lot of them were just really, really funny. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a huge scandalous cause for debate, uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was so commercially successful that it was impossible to suppress, um, in either Britain or America. So, you know, it went on to sell millions and millions of copies. Well, yeah, and she, you know, you talk quite a bit about her coming to America and being received pretty rapturously. I mean, no, no one seemed to be bothered by, except maybe in Boston, by by the dirty bookness right. of it. I mean, it's just they were just excited to have that little lady here who writes those books. So, 
you know, it, it, but there is, you know, a bit of a disjuncture, yes, between that is sort of, yes, I think rapturous is the right word to describe what it seems like many of the kinds of crowds that are turning out feel about the book and buying the book on the one hand. On the other hand, the critical establishment in Anglo-America was still pretty, I mean, in America, rather, was still pretty hostile to the book. Um, but it was the case, you're right, like the worst of it came from like Anthony Constock and, and the Puritan mothers of Boston, um, you know, who, who got it banned, um, you know. Which no doubt sold 100,000 more copies. Exactly. exactly. Well, that was the thing. You know, controversy, as we know, can do more than anything to publicize. Um, and so the Eleanor Glenn figured that out. And she really what was remarkable about it in many ways you know, about her in many ways, as I said, this, you know, my admiring her courage, right? Rather than being sort of, um, you know, forced, first of all, publishing it in her own name, under her own name as a woman was literally almost unheard of. And then to sort of not retire in shame, but to go on this book tour in America and sort of create this literary persona as really only men had done up until that point, right? You can think of Mark Twain, um, who loved her and loved the book. You can think of, obviously, Charles Dickens, who's probably, you know, you can think of Lord Byron. And, and you know, but women hadn't done it in their lifetime. And most of them were still publishing under pseudonyms. And so not only does she publish under her name, but she goes around on this tour uh, and really creates this persona that is like part of the character of her book, you know, the lady, and part, you know, this transgressively sexy, powerful siren of sorts, um, and part, you know, the, the English squire's wife, very proper British lady. And the combination really helped her to also sort of reach new heights. And she does kind of thread this needle of being personally respectable even as she's writing these books. And I think if she had been, you know, like the, the Xaviera Hollander of 1910 in some sense, right. it just would not have been the right. same for her. Uh, That's right. You know, she, I agree. she needed to be someone that particularly Americans would look at as a lady. The British accent I know helped, you know, immensely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, right that very you know and you can actually hear her there's a like a clip that's on youtube now she's being interviewed about the whole idea of it right her concept oh, wow. of it and and a, yeah and a 1927 um newsreel british newsreel and you know she, it was great because i people had commented on her voice she was extremely vain about her her voice <laughs> as she was about many things you know, about her personal appearance she put a great deal of care into them all um, as befitted the sister, the little sister, you know, of Lucille Duff Gordon, Lady Duff Gordon, um, who literally treated her like a doll from the time she was born, probably. <laughs> she, she came by her vanity very, very honestly, I like to think. But yeah, it was um, her voice and her British pedigree and the ladiness of her context in Edwardian England definitely gave her a lot of clout in America. Um, and I think accounted for some of the, you know, she did have a softer and more ultimately, um, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, you know, her, her relationship with the American press 
is better than her relationship with the British press. That's for sure. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's very funny reading about how quickly she caught on how to flatter them. And, you know, she's always telling American reporters how much better they are than British reporters and things That's like right. that. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. She did figure out how to play them much, um, much better. And, you know, this, I think that the kind of role that she was portraying at one point in the book, I know I write about, you know, this is partially why she would end up fitting so well in Hollywood. I think Americans have a little bit more comfort with the kind of showmanship that goes into, you know, becoming a celebrity author um, or a personality, a kind of tastemaker, a public one, right? The kind of showiness of that. I think that particularly for women, that's still harder in Britain than it was in America, where there's a little bit more of an ethos, certainly in that early period of if you could get away with it and it was commercially successful, a little, you know, kind of more power to you almost, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's my read of it anyway. And it was an easier time for women. I mean, as we know, in many ways, ironically, than it would be in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting when she gets to Hollywood. I mean, obviously, a big part of it is she wants to be, she wants to sell her books to Hollywood. She wants to have control over them so that they're not totally butchered into something she didn't write. But there's also a thing where, you know, it was kind of a moment you talk about new thought, which Mm -hmm. is basically what we now would call new age thinking. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was a kind of feel good religiosity that might not be particularly religious, uh, but it was very popular in, in newly prosperous, newly sexy and, and celebrity full and, and exciting to be young and horny in Hollywood in the twenties. Right. And she arrives there and sees something that she's perfect for, which is being a leader in new thought. So yeah, let's talk about how she influenced people in Hollywood as well as films. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's also important to remember she was literally the oldest person working in early Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously. I mean, you know, I, 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 I went through and checked everybody's birthday. It's the only exact contemporary she had was William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Media <laughs> tycoon. Right? Right, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's really... And, and she was often at least a decade older than the men and often two or more than the women, Right. And so she arrived not only with this British accent, this upper class British accent and this European, you know, from Paris, French imprimatur of glamour um, dressed by her sister, who everybody in Hollywood knew. Right. Lucy had become a world renowned designer. So she was well known in the Hollywood milieu. So she arrives with this lineage. She insists on everyone calling her Madame Glenn because um, she knows Americans love a title, right? And she wants the kind of French provenance again, but she really should have been Grand Anglais because yeah. <laughs> she was that much older. But not everyone, hardly anyone I can think of, would have been able to take that package and turn it into what she did, which was, you know, Gloria Swanson within, you know, months of Eleanor Glenn's arrival, because the first movie that Glenn is set to work on is with Swanson, and it's her first starring above the title Vehicle. And Glenn has been given a title and she's supposed to come up with an original story based on this title that Jesse Lasky of Paramount Pictures gave her. And, you know, 
Swanson describes how even before the movie started, she had created so much publicity about herself that she had the audience and, you know, and readers hanging on every word, as she put it. So she's able to do that. You know, it's remarkable. Again, I, I have admiration for the way that even in this Mila, as we now know from a lot of scholarship, right, in which women are um, allowed to do much more than just act, right, when they are very prominent, uh, certainly in screenwriting and still as directors um, and producers and a whole host of other capacities. She manages to really become the most famous celebrity author in a matter of months. And you're right, like some of it does feel almost this new thought thing. I mean, what the new age description that you use, that, that definitely captures part of it. But it also, she sincerely believed in reincarnation. She sincerely believed in mediums, specifically having the ability to access other people, you know, who had passed on. Um, and to sort of have visions about things, you know, that, that could tell you things about your past or present. And, and those were sincere beliefs at first. Like, I, I had to grapple with that, right? I had to really grapple with the fact that she really believed this was all true. Um, you know, obviously, there are millions and millions of people, you know, throughout South Asia that also believe in reincarnation, right? It's not, and in her time, as you noted, right, spiritualism, as it was called, was very popular among, you know, some very intellectual circles and artistic circles, um, upper class circles, women more than men, but, but some very noted men too, called themselves spiritualists. You know, she certainly believed that, I think other people did believe too, that she had a certain um, ability to see trends and know what audiences wanted. Right. And she certainly was able to convince Hollywood folks that who wanted to put more sex on screen. Right. That was not something she had to convince them to want to do. But she was able to convince them of ways of doing it that would get them in less trouble. Um, and that this idea of kind of glamour at one point I was going to call the book the invention of glamour because it was sort of, you know, that element of bringing that dimension to the way that women's sexuality and sex in general was being portrayed that I think she contributed that helped to kind of still some of the censorship battles that were really going on in that period over how much sex could be shown on screen. Right. Um, And so, I mean, I think that's how she got power was that they kind of, they kind of looked at her and was like, wow, she's, she really is able to in part because she does have this kind of, slightly conservative side. Like you said, she threads this needle, right? And she is criticizing people in Hollywood for drinking too much and for doing drugs and, you know, these other things. So she is, she does moralize to some extent about certain kinds of behavior, um, which kind of gives her then more latitude in other dimensions, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I thought it was really interesting that when all the Hollywood scandals, you know, Fatty Arbuckle and William Desmond Taylor and so on, so on, break in the early 20s, you might think the famous dirty book writer is exactly the sort of person that you want to get out of Hollywood. But in fact, right. she's a real asset at that point because she knows how to make it classy and how to portray sexuality not in just the animalistic way that a lot of these 
actors who came from, you know, poor and not particularly well-educated or well-refined backgrounds are just sort of jumping to projecting their sexuality and instead finding a way to do it artfully in the the Eleanor Glynn method of lovemaking uh, that that has that that sort of more drawn out eroticism to it. I mean, like you said, you know, it takes forever for sex to actually happen in in three weeks, which is you know really the secret of of erotica is keep delaying it. You know, <laughs> keep keep right. the keep right. the tension going, keep the desire right. you know on on right. a simmer. So exactly. No, exactly. And that's why, you know, as you mentioned, the protégés like Valentino and John Gilbert, too, were also illustrated that method, you know, as well as anyone um, did, taught by her, right, how to actually kiss a woman's arm properly, starting on the back of her palm and going up her arm, right? These kinds of keeping the tension going techniques right? Um, as you said, that are so key to erotica. Yeah, I, it's, it was funny, because you're right, exactly. You would think that she would be the one who was um, also, you know, up for having her head on the chopping block. But in fact, we all know William Hayes, but, but Eleanor Glenn was sort of there, you know, even before Hayes showed up to try to, you know, figure out how to manage Hollywood's PR in a way that softened those critics and those censorship activists and those moralist attacks, right, who really did see it as a new kind of Babylonian cultural scene that was yeah. influencing too many young people, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and we know there was that dimension to it, um, as you said. I mean, what do you expect? As Eleanor said, I love this one column where, where basically she says after, you know, the Arbuckle uproar, and she's asked to write, you know, a series of columns for Photoplay magazine called, you know, about the whole incident and what's, and she writes one called Justice. And she basically says something like, you know, what do you all expect? I mean, these are young people that are beautiful, you know, gorgeous, healthy young people working in a profession that constantly throws the sexes together and plays on their emotions. They're surrounded by, you know, more drugs and alcohol than any young generation has ever been before them, which was true, right? Yeah. Um, There was a ton of drugs and alcohol going on in the 20s, as we know. That was something she was, that that did concern her a lot. She's like, what do you expect is going to happen? Right. And it's easy for she puts it like old maids and, you know, basically Peoria and their withered old husbands to, you know, cast aspersions on them. But but really, what do you really expect? (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's going to be a fair amount of sex going on. Yeah. Um, Now, it's interesting. I mean, the it girl, most of us would say, was Clara Bow. And she, of course, stars in it, which Eleanor has a. Um, a little more than a cameo. She has a, a supporting appearance in, but she, obviously she's mainly there to be trotted out because of who she is. Um, but actually she and Bo did not really get along that well. And Bo did not particularly take her to her lessons. Uh, maybe she thought mm-hmm. she already had all the, it anybody needed and, you know the heck with the heck with Eleanor <laughs> Glynn trying to tell her how to be Clara Bow. Yeah, no, it is a kind of strange swan song that film, which is, as you've said, the thing that it, if, if many if you know Eleanor Glenn, particularly in the United States, 
often you know her because you know the movie it. Um, and so it's, it is one of the things, certainly the idea of the it girl, you know, is being one of the enduring things that she contributes to popular culture. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, the movie really was this kind of, uh, you know, her actual relationship to it was, was, was very thin by that point. She is almost like this, uh, specter that's trotted out in the film. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, you know, it doesn't even like, it's, I don't think it's how she would want it, want to be remembered. But in any case, I do think you're right that by 1927, when that movie is made, Clara Bow is effectively two and a half generations younger than her. There is a way that Eleanor's advice is not as relevant anymore um, to this new era that's emerging. Uh, and that Bo really, I mean, everyone said about Bo that she was basically untamable. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't only Eleanor Glenn that failed to have much influence on her. It sounds, you know, from what I understand, it was pretty much, no one did. Um, no one succeeded in that. But, you know, I do think Bo came near the end of her life. She said a lot of really lovely things about Eleanor Glenn. Um, and... Glenn wrote a defense of her that was not published uh, sort of after some of the initial scandals that Bo went through in the early 1930s that was very thoughtful about um, Bo. And so I do think that they, I think that Bo needed the kind of confidence that being Eleanor Glenn's It Girl gave her. Um, But by 1927, the substance of what the glamour part of what Eleanor Glenn had given these earlier, you know, mentors like Swanson and um, Valentino and and John Gilbert, that part of it, like styles were changing and she wasn't able to quite even the continue to be the style guru that she had been. Right. And I think Bo in some ways knew that. Right. I mean, Eleanor Glenn didn't know anything about shop girl in Coney Island. That was not familiar. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, So the story had been dramatically changed. Uh, from the one that she wrote, uh, for the one that, you know, from, from the story that she wrote to the screen. It, was, it really wasn't her story anymore. Right. Um, now, interestingly, <clears throat> after her Hollywood period, which pretty much ends at the end of the silent era, she goes back to England um, for various reasons that have to do with taxes and things like that and winds up trying to give the the British film industry, a bit of Eleanor Glynn star power and, and sensation, which completely flops. Um, I suspect part of it is just that once the silent era is over and the depression is coming and stuff like that, she's, you know, she's really kind of out of tune with the times as, as authors will often be. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an, it's an odd little coda to everything that comes before it and not successful mm-hmm. for her. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, as you say, you know, I think that her becoming out of the tune of the time starts really with it. If you know the real right. lack of sort of influence she had on that movie, but it becomes very evident when she goes back to London and she produces these two movies. I mean, I do think that the press is a little harsh, um, particularly about the second one. Uh, and I think, you know, the fact that it was released in Britain accounts for some of that again, because as I mentioned, she 
um, did come to earn a certain kind of respect from the American press and I think even a fondness in some quarters over time, but that did not happen in Britain. So I do think that they were a little harsh um, on the one hand. On the other hand, as one of the critics said, you know, her, her stories remained really set in Mayfair, right, which is the rich part of London um, where aristocrats would have their townhomes. And, and that was not in tune, absolutely, with sort of where things were even, you know, in the early 30s. Um, and so, I mean, by that point, she was in her 70s. It really wasn't surprising that she was winding down. Um, but it, it did, you know, it did mean she also lost a great deal of money. So yeah. much of the fortune that she had made in Hollywood, um, you know, was sort of spent. She completely bankrolled both these movies out of her own bank account, which is kind of crazy. It's miraculous, actually, that I think she did manage nonetheless to have a kind of comfortable and I, she enjoyed the last years of her life in London, you know, despite those failures. I, I think, you know, she enjoyed sort of the kind of uh, homage that a younger generation was paying to her. Um, and she enjoyed sort of being the grand dame, you know, living in her, you know, elegant little apartment, um, literally in Mayfair <laughs> yeah. with her, with her cat. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was unfortunate, you know, certainly that she basically blew most of the money she made in Hollywood on her own movies. Hmm. Now, what do you think, you know, what was her influence in that time? I mean, was she kind of ignored at, you know, at first, you know, in that 30s period as being way out of style, which also happened to her sister, incidentally, as a fashion designer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with her sister, that, yeah, that happened earlier, um, really in the early 20s. Lucy fell out of favor very quickly and very hard as uh, fashions changed really dramatically in the early 1920s. Um, you know, with Eleanor, it didn't happen really until the late 20s. But Barbara Cartland, for instance, um, and several other very, very successful romance novelists uh, of the 20s and 30s who were getting their start then pay open homage to her, right, as their predecessor. Um, you know, sort of style mavens, you know, like Cecily Beaton, um, Cecil Beaton, rather, and Beverly Nichols, you know, really do the same in the world of design. So she's, you know, she is considered to be a kind of trailblazing, slightly campish, you know, it is yeah. taking on some of those qualities by yeah. the 1930s. Uh, but she's okay with that, right? I mean, this is a woman who wears one of her cats as a stole around her neck. <laughs> you know, she's, she's, a, she's campy in a way. Yeah. Um, and she, and she is, likes to be kind of a figure of older bravura, right? She lets her hair go silver finally at the, you know, the very end. And, you know, she is quite this elegant figure, by the, you know, in her last years wearing this kind of long drapey tunic style velvet stuff with the long pearls still. World War II starts, you know, when in her very final years. And so certainly by that point, um, she drops out of sight pretty much, although she publishes her last book uh, just the year before she dies. And she continues to publish journalistic pieces right until the end as well. So, you know, that's another thing that I guess I admire about her is that she doesn't 
um, ever really just kind of give up on life. She always is just interested and curious about it and does her part to sort of stay abreast of things and contribute to, you know, sort of the commentary about it or, you know, just to be a part of it in whatever way she can, even when she's an old blind lady, right. Living, you know, with her cat in London. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about the romance novelists, um, but it also seems to me, I mean, things like Lady Chatterley's lover, I mean, would that exist without Eleanor Glynn already having, gone there in the marketplace. Right. Well, I thank you for saying that. I agree. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's sad that we, you know, that she's been so forgotten for the most part for many reasons, but one of them is that, you know, we do associate D.H. Lawrence with breaking the kind of literary Anglo-American literary code about sexuality when in fact Eleanor Glenn really did that more than a decade beforehand. Someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald, 30 years younger than her, you know, mistakenly thinks they're the same age, right? Because he also sees her as kind of like he was accused of doing too, right? Writing about uh, sexuality and romance in franker ways and shocking people about that. So yeah, she's definitely the first one to really make it permissible to detail this, this level of erotica in mainstream fiction. Hilary A. Howlett's Inventing the It Girl, How Eleanor Glynn Created the Modern Romance and Conquered Early Hollywood, is out now from Live Right and Norton. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. There's a scene in the 1931 movie Possessed with Joan Crawford. If you haven't seen the film, you might have seen it in the cinematography documentary Visions of Light. Crawford is a small-town gal, watching a train pass through. And each rectangular window is like a shop window advertising other lives she could live. People in fancy clothes dancing and drinking cocktails and making love Eleanor Glynn style. Of course, the other thing these windows are a metaphor for is going to the movies. And it turns out the analogy between shop windows and movie screens wasn't a new one. Hollywood explicitly saw its movie screens in other countries as shop windows advertising Hollywood notions of exhibition and of American life, selling it to other peoples. That's the story that Ross Melnick, professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, tells in his book Hollywood's Embassies how movie theaters projected American power around the world from Columbia University Press. I spoke with him from California. Um, well, I was really interested in your book because it was about something I've just never thought about at all, which is foreign exhibition and, and what its purposes were. So, yeah, tell me what's the what got you interested in this and what was the thesis that you were sort of working on? Well, you know, it was all an accident how this book began. I was working on a previous book called American Showman, which was about Samuel Roxy Rothenfeld. And I discovered that a number of the people he had worked for and worked with at the Capitol Theater in New York 
were being sent by Lowe's MGM to Paris, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. This was many, many years ago, even before I started working on the book. And as I started doing the research, I realized, okay, so there's a there's an agreement between Lowe's, MGM, and Gaumont. And then I realized, okay, well, there's also the Paramount Theater in Paris. And before I, I noticed it, I was finding these connections in these foreign cinemas around the world. And so over time, uh, while finishing up that book, I began to sort of poke around this research. And then over the last 10 years, I've just explored uh, this vast infrastructure of movie theaters operated by MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Fox that existed from 1923 to 2013. Yeah, and uh, I mean, starting in the earliest days of that, uh, you talk about uh, MGM and Paramount in particular were interested in having what came to be called shop window theaters in other countries. What what was a shop window? So there was a, a movement by Paramount in the beginning to think about building and leasing many, many cinemas. And in England, they ran into a lot of opposition because British exhibitors were fine playing American films. But there was a concern that, of course, if American companies began building and leasing cinemas across England, um, essentially the British film industry would cease to exist because they would not only have the screens dominated increasingly by, by Hollywood films, but the cinemas themselves would be run by the Americans. And that was obviously a kind of uh, cultural, political problem because, you know, the rise of American culture was already beginning to concern many who felt that the British sensibility certainly in the Commonwealth and in the empire, was waning with the desire for Hollywood. So as they got this pushback from the British exhibitors, they realized that they really should have kind of key cinemas, or in this case, shop window cinemas. And the idea of a shop window is that it's essentially like a display window. It is a way to advertise your wares like it would be as a shop window of a department store. But in this case, let's say the empire for MGM in London, or the plaza in, in, in Par- for Paramount in London, or Le Paramount in Paris, uh, for the company, they were essentially first-run exotic uh, movie palaces where they got the films first. They essentially demonstrated to local exhibitors who would then book those in outlying cities and towns and neighborhoods how to, quote-unquote, put on uh, the Hollywood film. So they would demonstrate how should the lobby look during the silent era, maybe how the music should be scored, how stage shows should be presented, how the overall entertainment should be. And they would run exclusively those films sometimes, one, two, three, six weeks or more, so that each of those films had their proper display. They allowed for the citizens of those cities, as well as, again, the exhibitors coming from the outlying areas to see how MGM or Paramount and later Warner Brothers and Fox would essentially display and exhibit those films in those areas. And of course, that means lobby displays and posters and standees and many other kinds of, ex- of terms of exploitation, as well as cross promotions with local retailers and advertising. So it was really an opportunity for Hollywood to put in all the tricks it was doing in the United States in foreign territories. And also politically, it created a place for uh, local dignitaries, business leaders to sort of enter American space. So the other idea that I talk about, in addition to a shop window, is this notion of cultural embassy. You know, we have an official embassy that's run by the State Department that's part of the American uh, kind of foreign-facing, front-facing, um, uh, front-positioning. But with the cultural embassy, it was Hollywood's ability for you to enter, quote-unquote, the United States to feel what it was like to be in America, to be treated like a king or queen, if you will, in a movie house, and be celebrated by all this kind of consumerism and 
and uh, quote unquote democracy that uh, that Hollywood films and the movie theaters had as well. So between the shop window concept, which was the idea of a single uh, uh, opulent movie house, which was often first run and would show how to move show these movies. On top of that, you had this notion of the cultural embassy, which allowed for all kinds of things to be transacted, including the newsreel. Because one of the things that we always forget is that in this period, from the 20s through the 1960s, you had more than just a feature film. You also had shorts and newsreels, which allowed you to also exhibit kind of politics and information. There was obviously at a certain point in the 20th century, a lot of notions of McDonald's and Coca-Cola being America's representatives in other countries and trying to sell an American way of life. Rock and roll was like that. Um, you know, you talk at one point about how Hilton hotels were very explicitly intending a kind of Cold War purpose about, you know, this is what America is like. Boy, doesn't it look better than what you have? Um, but uh, I don't know. Were, were theaters really the first example of that sort of American cultural hegemony in, in other countries. I can't think of anything else that goes back that far. Yeah, you know, they, in many cases, they really kind of were in some of these cities. I mean, you certainly had things like Ford dealerships opening in foreign places. There were other examples of American products for sure. But a kind of retail establishment on a city street, prominent American display, um, those that opened in the 20s and 30s often predated Conrad Hilton's hotels, which he referred to as Little Americas, um, which is the idea, again, was that you could, once again, enter kind of American soil through these foreign hotels. Yeah, they, these predated, you know, all the Disneylands, the foreign Disneylands, yeah. the McDonald's outlets, the Starbucks, by decades upon decades. And that's why they were so controversial, because nobody had really tried this to sort of create a kind of American retail chain experience overseas on uh, mass, and not just because they were retail, but they were also cultural and therefore political. And so in moments where people were very excited about the United States, people loved these theaters and thronged to get into them. And when people hated these theaters, they attacked them. Yeah. So that's <laughs> the other piece about this. Yeah. I mean, you, you tell, that happens even early in England. Uh, the Battle of Birmingham you talk about, what was that? Well, that was precisely what I was mentioning earlier, which was that when they decided to, this is Paramount decided to lease a cinema in Birmingham, and the uh, Cinematographic Exhibitors Association, which was the trade association for the movie theater exhibitors in England, essentially told Paramount, if you don't give back the lease you've just taken from Saul Levy here in Birmingham, and if you don't stop building or leasing cinemas across the country, none of us will ever show a Paramount film ever again. Because they, they saw it as an existential threat to their business. Right. And so the Battle of Birmingham was essentially this, this moment where they basically drew a line in the sand, the exhibitors did. And so Paramount, for, for a second, for a few years, kind of took a pause and said, okay, that's fine. We'll just keep ourselves to, to London and a couple of theaters. But they were on top of these kinds of uh, industrial pushback, as you are alluding to, there were violent attacks against these cinemas. Um, there were the Cairo Metro, for instance, was attacked three times in 1945, 1947, and 1952. Um, some of these were bombings. Some of them were, were where the theater was set aflame. Uh, people died. Uh, legs were blown off. And so there was multiple attacks on cinemas um, you know, around the world. Most of the time, it was the threat of violence and the threat of closure. Um, but there was a lot of pushback. There was pushback in places you would even imagine. Um, because they just didn't want 
the encounter of American cultural imperialism coming in in places like Switzerland. And so there were all kinds of both industrial, political, and even sometimes uh, militant uh, pushback against the growth of American popular culture and, of course, the retail establishments, a.k.a. the cinemas, uh, that hosted them. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, so Paramount and and MGM seem to kind of go to the idea of having the one key cinema in the country or in the major capital or whatever uh, as as an example for others to follow. Um which wasn't that different from what like Lowe's did in the big cities. It usually had a show showplace theater, you know, in, in a major city that where its movies open first. Um, now you talk about Fox did it completely differently. I mean, they were really out to acquire theater chains and kind of you know be the the two thousand pound gorilla in all these markets. Yeah, Fox was you know, and you could argue which worked better. I think they worked for different purposes. I think MGM and Paramount principally were looking for foreign outlets, sometimes in very difficult territories. You know, in South Africa, for instance, uh, Israel Schlesinger was the huge exhibitor distributor there, and he was giving the Hollywood the business. He was not allowing them to get very good rental terms. He was blocking them from starting their own theaters. So Lowe's built their own in 1932. So they tried to get these shop window cinemas for these kinds of strategic purposes. Fox had a different way of looking at it, um, even going back to the 1920s, you know, when they tried to buy Lowe's MGM outright for the right. block by the Justice Department. They tried to take over a majority stake in Gaumont British to take over a big uh, British exhibitor, producer, distributor. But they also bought, in 1930, uh, Hoyt's Theatres in Australia. So they own one of the two big chains in Australia. In 1936, they began a 50% and then later total purchase of amalgamated theaters in New Zealand. So they were a massive owner of theaters across Australasia. Uh, they also invested heavily in Africa. So in 1955-56, they purchased from Isidore Schlesinger African Consolidated Theaters, which was the biggest theater chain from Kenya all the way down to South Africa, including Colonial Zimbabwe. About 155 apartheid cinemas, so totally racially segregated cinemas, were owned by Fox. And these are just some of its investments. So they had a different strategy, which was that they were looking for ways to generate revenue on top of securing their own film distribution. And so one thing that they recognized was how important these English-speaking markets were which is why they had those investments in England, again, in South Africa, uh, in Kenya, these kind of uh, British colonial outposts, which were receding as independence came on. And then you also have, of course, what's going on in Austra Australia and New Zealand, which, which they ran from 1930, Hoyts they owned from 1930 to 1982. So this is an over 50-year ownership of a major uh, chain in a foreign country. So Fox had a different idea. Warner Brothers also had a different idea. Um, they started very, very slowly um, in the current foreign exhibition game, really not until 1938 with the Warner Theater in London. But in 1987, uh, the company started something called Warner Brothers International Theaters, which was a huge uh, global circuit that ran around the world and eventually uh, into China, um, which again had local partnerships, but also had these, these multiplexes across the world. And I talk about that as well, because again, different time periods. And I think that's what's complicated about the book is that you know, you'd love to have a generalized argument. Oh, everybody did this in this period for this reason. And as I demonstrate in the book, every decade, every country, every company had a different idea for different companies at different times. And so that's why Fox and Warner Brothers ran things differently because they started a little later, 
but their idea was we need revenue. And on t- one of the things that they really wanted, um, especially after the 1948 consent decree, and I should just explain what I'm talking about, which is that, of course, we all know the consent decree in the United States forced the divestiture of production distribution from exhibition, but that was only domestically. So internationally, the Justice Department had no interest in stopping Hollywood studios from owning theaters overseas. So Fox and other companies, including Paramount, after the 48 consent decree, were looking to the international marketplace to replace some of the revenue they were going to lose by having to give up their theaters. So that's where some of that investment becomes in, in 48 all the way through 1960, is these companies beginning to buy, build, and lease cinemas in foreign countries to, again, offset the losses from the loss of their domestic theater circuits. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I've looked into in the past is uh, box office revenues. And you see such a difference when the international markets really open up, which, of course, isn't just showing their movies in the theaters they owned. But, I mean, it really, the most you would spend in a mo- on a movie in the 30s and 40s was about $4 million. That's what Gone with the Wind cost. That's what Frenchman's Creek cost and so on. And then after the war, I mean, they're just routinely thinking, oh, well, we'll make a new Ben-Hur. It'll probably cost $10 million. I mean, it's, you know, it's way more money than they mm-hmm. would have expected before. So clearly, you know, that just shows the, the importance of the, the foreign markets to their bottom line at that point. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that they were really looking for was we need to make a, a, a splash. And they also, there was a decline in the production, as you know, in the studio output, because once they can't guarantee the distribution of their own films because they don't own the theaters, they then have to right, begin selling every film, you know, film by film, theater by theater, zone by zone. And so they can't rely on this guaranteed output. So as you say, they move to this roadshow interest, right, of doing the big Ben Hurst and the big, you know, sort of sword and sandal epics and big budget films. And the foreign markets love those films. So part of the other thing I think is interesting is that they use these theaters overseas almost like research operations. So local managers of theaters overseas were actually there to report back to Hollywood. Hey, what do people in Brazil like? What do people in France like? What kind of genres are they interested? And so we never can forget that the foreign market, even though it was definitely less money than the domestic market during this time period, it isn't anymore, of course, but during this time period, it still drove the idea that this is the kind of film that will play huge in South America. This will be fantastic for the Australian and South African markets. They like this kind of film. Um, And so, and remembering too, that they were also conscious about racial and political issues that would be problematic when they, so like, oh, we can't show, if we make this film, we're gonna have a huge problem showing this in South Africa or Kenya or anywhere in the Sub-Saharan African market. So they were very conscious. And then again, the, the exhibitors, and their local managers, sales managers and others in the foreign markets, they were there to report back to Hollywood what was going to play well. So I think we don't usually think about that, that we just think it's all kind of domestically driven. And of course it is because that's where the major money for them was. But they understood like any company, even in 2022, you grow your revenue annually by opening new markets. And so they needed new markets, they needed new revenue streams, they needed new ways to, to increase earnings, especially after the consent decree. So yes, they definitely wanted films that would play big. And oftentimes what would play big would be visually oriented films right? with less dialogue, with less socially and culturally specific problematic issues, ones that would play, you know, big Bible stories, 
you know, again, the, the roadshow attractions uh, were huge for the international market. Um, and they were also, hopefully, um, not as complex as something about the decline of, you know, American popular culture or, or right. um, um, political strife. Yeah. Now, and you have that, that great uh, ironic bit at the beginning where uh, South Pacific, which, of course, you know, is racially mixed and, and you know, tries to be pretty open and, you know, toward other races. And, uh, you know, it's playing in in parts of Africa where you, you know, where it can only show to white audiences and stuff like that. You say, as you point out, even a, even segregated drive-ins so you can't you know you can't like be in the bubble of your car and not be the appropriate race so yeah i mean i think the thing about i mean i have different parts of the book as anyone does um that they like they appreciate and sort of where that we look at it and you sort of like look at it again and say well this is really a kind of crazy um this history and i think hollywood's adventures in in the african market um are, are, are that. And part of it is because, as you just said, you know, they opened South Pacific at a theater in what was then uh, Southern Rhodesia or Colonial Zimbabwe. And it, the premiere was for the Red Cross. It was a benefit for the Red Cross, which gave money to, you know, all races. But the company at that point was owned by Fox, which owned African Consolidated Theaters. And there was a rule in Colonial Zimbabwe which said you can have mixed race audiences as long as you have two separate bathrooms. And this is a brand new theater. So it was owned by Fox and Fox said, okay, we, we have a choice. We can, we can put two different bathrooms in there. We can have everybody in here. And they made a conscious decision not to have two bathrooms. They just, so it was a whites only theater. So at that point in Southern Rhodesia slash colonial Zimbabwe's history, they were under something called multiracial partnership. And the idea of multiracial partnership was not South African apartheid. It was this idea. It was mostly class oriented. Basically it was a white power structure saying, look, we we're happy to have, you know, um, non-whites here as long as they have money, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you can pay the ticket, right, so you can come in, that's our multi Oh, can't imagine that happening today. <laughs> right, exactly. So they basically said it was open to everyone as long as you can pay the ticket. So, but even there they said, no, we don't even, we don't want any of this. It's a whites-only theater. And so everybody began blaming everybody else. So the, the Southern Rhodesian guys, they blamed the people um, in South Africa. The South African company blamed the headquarters in New York. The U.S. Embassy, which was getting all this blowback in the press and everywhere else, began to then contact uh, Fox and say, why are you doing this? And Fox said, well, we're, we're not doing this. It's actually the South Africans. So, you know, essentially the State Department recognized very quickly in 1959, they were completely powerless to stop what Fox was doing. And that was a weird moment for them because they were setting up this whole kind of Cold War uh, front, right, a kind of popular um, uh, marketing, if you will, in the African continent, which basically said, oh, America's fantastic. We're kind of post-racial. And this is in the middle of the Cold War, right? So the Soviets are pushing in their ideologies. Americans are pushing in their ideologies. And here's this theater sitting in uh, Salisbury, Southern Rhodesia, a.k.a. Harare, Zimbabwe. And it is whites only, even though it's not required by the state. And it's owned by Fox. Everybody knows it's by Fox. And the opening night movie is South Pacific, uh, a movie that's all supposedly about uh, that you have to be taught to hate and fear. And this is undercutting the entire kind of Hollywood mission and therefore undercutting the entire American mission in the area. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, let's talk about the American mission, because I think that's, to me, that's a really interesting part of, I guess, the second half of the book, where, I mean, it, it, it's particularly a Cold War thing, but it really kind of starts with Latin America, because there was such a push for influence during World War II. You know, you had all those things like Disney making films and Orson Welles making films in South America and the good neighbor policy and all of that. I feel like the... You know, American corporations saw it as, oh, here's another junior America we can take over and make a lot of money at. Um, wh- what was the what was the the way that that worked in Latin America? Well, you know, obviously the good neighbor policy was the was the politics of the moment. But I think when it comes to cinemas versus cinema, and I think that's always the distinction of this book, is that yeah. I don't deal much <laughs> in movies. I deal much in the movie theaters, and so in that distinction. They're running a very different kind of game with, with movie theaters. And I think, again, we cannot undersell the importance of how much short films and newsreels and cartoons and others were a constituent part of the movie-going experience, because that's one of the key ways that movie theaters really transmitted American ideology was the 10-minute newsreel you got, which was often made by, uh, by the studios back in the United States and then translated into you know Brazilian Portuguese or Spanish for the local markets. So... They were really thinking, how do we push back against this? Well, you know, the Germans weren't dumb, right? So the Germans were doing the exact same thing Hollywood was doing. The Germans were obviously distributing their films. The Nazis were uh, operating cinemas, sometimes with straw men. They were, they were interested in the same thing Hollywood was doing. So essentially, the movie theaters in the 1930s in Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil and other markets were essentially like operating as, as kind of competing ideological buildings. They, where you could, you would go in and you would get the kind of Nazi perspective, you know, gentle, gentler, right. you know, it was probably not quite as, as, as profound as it would be if you were in Germany, but you'd get the Nazi perspective in the German house. You'd get the American, you know, kind of democracy, quote unquote, perspective in their house. And so cinemas were not just movie theaters during the thirties and certainly during the 1940s, they were engines of ideology as they have always been. And so principally in that period, you really have that, uh, as part of the World War II machine, and I talk about the German, the Nazi takeover um, in Paris and in many other European markets during the 1940s, as well as what was going on. Um, the very difference between Brazil, which had really become uh, very friendly towards uh, the Nazis and even Nazi ideology, how much that changed after Pearl Harbor and how it became a constituent part of the kind of the American forward-facing um, uh, ideology movement inside the movie theaters, either run run by the Americans as well, and even those uh, run domestically by local exhibitors. So I think it's like when you think about the Cold War or World War II and you think about these theaters, it's important not to place the 2022 sanitized experience where you get, you know, a bunch of commercials and then you get the feature. You get, well, a bunch of commercials, the trailer, and then the feature. Um, You are going to a theater where there is all of this display, sometimes ideological, certainly during World War II, where it's Liberty Bonds and they're doing even uh, local promotions and raising money for local charities and local efforts. Um, in places like Cairo, actually British soldiers were flooding the local movie theaters. So if you've got stationed troops, it's, it's, it's already a very kind of militarized experience. And then when you're looking at this whole experience, you're there to see something where the cartoons may be, you know, from Disney during the war were, of course, very, you know, militarily organized and ideological. So you're getting a totally different experience and one that is very, very political, especially during World War II and then even well into the Cold War. Just because I find the country interesting, uh, I was interested in reading about how 
uh, movie theaters were received in Cuba, which, you know, had so many American influences then, many of them, like, mobster influences from America. The movie, the movie's coming to life in Cuba. Um, but, yeah, tell me, uh, you know, how did how were American theaters and American influence received, you know, through, like, up into the Batista era and whatever preceded it? I, I don't know the name of whoever came before Batista, but... Well, I think, you know, yeah, I think one of the things to, to think about with is that there's multiple different, there's so many administrations that come in and out every two, four years. And so there's a lot of change and the political change brings a lot of changes to things like labor. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, you have a, a number of exhibitors uh, who are trying to get into Cuba and they're being very, the Cuban exhibitors are being very smart about keeping them out. And then eventually they're able to, uh, there's a crack opens up in which Paramount can get in. And so in the 30s and 40s, Paramount begins to take over more and more cinemas in Cuba. And so Paramount actually has a whole chain of cinemas in Cuba. And at the same time, uh, Warner Brothers is increasingly looking again at the foreign market, especially after, the, after World War II. And Cuba becomes a very um, a, a, a opportune moment for them for investment. And so at the new um, Radio Centro, uh, which is Guarmestre, is kind of, it's sort of like this radio city if you will, for built on Rockefeller Center, where there's going to be radio and television, a brand new Warner Theater opens. And the theater is kind of the location of everything that's sort of interesting and complicated about operating in Cuba during that time period, because you've got labor battles, you've got conflicts between the kind of Warner Brothers, American ideology, and the kind of the local unions and politics. You've got all the, con- the sort of problems that are happening where the sort of revolutionary moment is growing into the early 50s. And so you've got all the concern about this market and all the declining ideas about whether or not it's going to be successful. And so Warner Brothers is there and pulled out and Paramount eventually also uh, leaves. And then this is all even before um, the revolution. And so uh, interestingly, the Warner Brothers Theater, which they disappear, it gets uh, it becomes the opening for a Cinerama film that's going to show there under the now-divorced company Stanley Warner, and uh, the theater is uh, attacked on opening night. So it, it, it's an interesting moment for, um, for Cuba and for the movie theaters, but I actually found that the whole Caribbean was an amazing um, kind of uh, uh, lens and to look at the way that Hollywood was trying to organize regions where countries and, and had totally different ideas, but Hollywood would try to constitute the whole thing as being either part of Latin America or part of the Caribbean, even if the countries and the politics were completely different. Talking about how the Germans competed with what the Americans were doing, was there a Soviet equivalent for that during the Cold War? That they're they're showing, you know, the cranes are flying and and serving vodka shots or something like that. You know, I didn't find that to be the case, but I, there there's a lot of opportunity for further investigation in this direction, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, the Soviets were interested in getting involved in um, post-war. Middle Eastern exhibition. They were poking around on that. The British, uh, through J. Arthur Rank and Odeon, um, had a huge, massive international exhibition operations that went around the world, almost as extensive as Hollywood. Truly, I mean, something that, you know, should be written about more extensively. As I mentioned, the Nazis were interested. Um, and the, the Italians were interested under Mussolini. So 
I think, you know, we don't think about movie theaters this way anymore. We don't have the sense that oh, movie theaters are the place, you know, that's, that's where all the important stuff is transacted. And maybe now we think it's, you know, Twitter or Facebook or God knows what, but <laughs> yeah. in this period, in this period, who controlled the movie theater is who controlled the content. And so, you know, giving a little power back to exhibitors and thinking about them as programmers and curators is important because they are the ones, especially when you own that big movie palace. And often these, these American movie theaters were usually, if not among the best or the best movie theater in each of the cinemas and cities that they operated. So remembering that they had, they had won the affections and kind of imagination of local citizenry as well as the press. So people would flock to them because of the building and how opulent and how wonderful the whole thing was, right? So if you're going to go to those places, you now have an entranced population. And one of the things I talk about is the way that they push back, it's not necessarily in geopolitical, you know, transnational politics it was actually local, which was there's a lot of independence movements going on around the, country, around the world, right, in the sure. post-war period. So you've got India and Egypt and other places. So Hollywood was concerned about this rise of nationalism, especially amongst the young people who were its future consumers. So one of the ways that they essentially locked in the next generation as they were rising out of this, you know, post-colonial national moment is they created cub clubs or kids clubs around the world. So for uh, Cairo and Mumbai and other places, MGM created the Metro Cub Club, which was Tom and Jerry cartoons, uh, kids movies you know, Coca-Cola, birthday cake, and making sure that kids were kind of hooked in from a very early age on all of the kind of MGM tentacolor adventures one could have. And that would recapture their imagination so that you could hold two thoughts in your head. You could be very nationalistic and excited about independent India, but you could also be super excited about American popular culture. And so they were clearly understood that the world was complicated, but there were ways to continue to get people to love American films and American movie theaters. Well, yeah, and you talk about a particular famous Indian uh, who had fond memories of the Cub Club. Tell, tell me about that. Well, you know, Salman Rushdie, I'm assuming who you're talking about, yes. talks very much about this in, in The Night's Children. Um, as I mentioned about going to the Metro Cub Club, there's a lot of conversation amongst not just him, but people who remember him going to the Metro Theater, the MGM cinema of his childhood, and how important watching The Wizard of Oz and other films was for him. And so it, it's, again, a reminder of how influential, um, I think, not just Hollywood films, but Hollywood movie theaters were. Uh, these cinemas really had a huge influence on people's uh, uh, kids, especially, on their kind of adoration for uh, American popular culture and these kinds of narratives. And so... Uh, Rushdie has written about this, um, you know, talked to him about this. And it, it's one of those things that I think it's, it's really, we underplay it. And I think you asked a question when we first began, like I hadn't read about, about this, you said. Well, neither had I. <laughs> fact, you know, before I'd written this book, I really, there really wasn't much out there. Um, Charles Acklin wrote a fantastic book that talks about the contemporary moment of, of global exhibition that really picks up in the 80s and 90s and takes us into the con contemporary world of the way that exhibition has had this huge impact on the kind of, you know, globalization of American popular culture and the studio product. This period, I really struggled to find a lot of information. And as I mentioned, I think in the introduction and certainly in the acknowledgement, there's a lot of conversation about this nationally. So you can read 
a book on New Zealand cinemas or a book on Scottish cinemas and a book on French cinemas. And they'll have all the American movie theaters in there. And they'll say, oh, yeah, and Paramount built this. But I think what Hollywood's embassies does for the first time is put this all together globally to understand this is not uh, this was not an isolated incident in South Africa. It's not isolated. As, as, as you know, the book covers 36 countries. Um, so when I began, I thought, oh, I found five or 10 countries where the Hollywood had operated some cinemas. And I had like a total of maybe like 20. I think by the time I was done, I was almost in the near thousand, certainly. And then you're also looking at, you know, 36 countries because it was over a 90 year period, uh, a very expensive campaign, very uncoordinated, um, very unstructured, but very successful. And as I mentioned today, you don't need these theaters anymore because Hollywood, you know, popular culture has ascended and the, the risks of owning real estate, not just politically, but financially has always been, has become more and more problematic. But in this period from the teens, 20s and 30s, sorry, from the 20s, 30s and 40s, and even into the 60s, this was one of the central ways that Hollywood could secure these foreign markets, especially get uh, exhibitors who are really powerful. And there were some around the world who would just really could block out uh, a, a national uh, cinema and, and avoid Hollywood basically building um, because it would basically say, you can go ahead and build one or two theaters here in, you know, in Montevideo or in uh, Buenos Aires, but I'm not going to play any of your films and you're going to die in the rest of the country. And eventually Hollywood figured out how to either buy circuits or to build one cinema or two and then work with the local distributors to at least guarantee, again, those first run outlets. And that's the kind of thing that, whether it was in Mumbai or Cairo or Johannesburg, was really central to the whole shop window cultural embassy model, which was that, hey, you can come to Hollywood, you can actually enter the United States just on your street, and you'll see something, you'll see a show, a presentation, it's just like you would get in New York. And you're going to love everything that we give you, because it's coming from us. And I think the last thing I would say about that is, you know, the, the, the converse of what I, of what I mentioned about Hilton hotels, which is that, you know, their idea of the Hilton hotel was, hey, uh, American, you know, you're, you're from Omaha, and you're going to come to Cairo. When you come to Cairo, we're going to give you a theater, that, uh, excuse me, a hotel looks like Cairo. So we're going to give you this kind of exotic presentation of Cairo in a kind of modernist aesthetic. Well, yeah. they weren't doing that for theaters. They were actually trying to exoticize the United States. So it was attracting people to movie theaters locally was that if you're in uh, Mumbai, you get to basically see what American architecture looks like and what American presentation looks like. So they were selling the United States as something exotic. Yeah. And so that was the whole trick with like exotic on the outside, but local and comfortable on the inside. And that kind of global approach that they used was very, very successful for obviously decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exotic and also highly desirable. You know, yeah. everybody kind of wanted a taste of that, even if they were politically opposed to the United States. Yeah. And I did talk about that, too, where there were people, you know, who were just talking about the the kind of the shock of uh, seeing uh, an American movie house operated in Berlin or somewhere else, that it was essentially just it, it was a shock to see this kind of like this mass consumerism come to uh, a very locally specific culture and trying to figure out how to deal with it, whether or not, was it going to change us? Uh, or would this be seen as one sort of exotic place? And that would be that. Yeah. Um, all right. So here we are 2022. And a lot of us would say that the, you know, kind of the reverse of, of this era of American cultural imperialism 
you know, has sort of come in that there's so much Chinese acquisition and, and influence now. I mean, on the one hand, we've got Marvel movies going to the whole world, but on the other hand, we change Tibetan characters in Doctor Strange to Tilda Swinton so that, uh, you know, because uh, you, you can't show Tibet on a screen if right. you ever want anything you make to ever be shown in China again. So, um I don't know where where do you think we are at this point is is China giving us a taste of our own medicine or how's the world work now I don't think I don't, I don't I wonder if anybody really knows how the world works now um, <laughs> things you know I don't I don't proclaim to know I mean I will say that things have changed a little bit in one way um you know China is an increasingly difficult market for Hollywood uh, obviously Hollywood films are still showing there but <clears throat> it's one of many markets where Hollywood is having trouble getting its films in, and not just because of the content, but because there's a huge you know, Chinese production industry that the government there wants to have in its cinemas, and it doesn't want to rely on Hollywood. And when it does have Hollywood come in, yes, it's definitely very much uh, about what, how Hollywood presents sexuality or race or Tibet or any other number of issues. Um, but, you know, right now, Hollywood films aren't showing in Russia. Uh, Hollywood films aren't showing... Uh, often in, in China. So there's a lot of just, I think, interest in where are Hollywood films going. There's a lot of confusion about the streaming market, you know, about what HBO Max is doing, um, the lack of content for theaters, even domestically. Um, there's concern about the indie market, like are art house films even viable in movie theaters, or are they just going to be basically objects for festivals to be picked up and put on streaming services? So I could go through a million things that I think if I were would since I'm being recorded um, <laughs> and later you could look, listen back to this and go, that guy had no idea what he's talking about. Let me <laughs> acknowledge that I bet even though I like to think I know half of what's going on, I think it's important to understand that right now we're at a pivot. Um, and I think that uh, it's really a, a question, I think, about what movie theaters are going to be doing, what Hollywood is going to be doing, how much is Netflix going to turn slightly towards a theatrical model? HBO Max slash Warner Brothers Discovery has leaned further back into theatrical. That's good. Um, but I think there's a huge concern amongst art house. I've never seen so much coverage of movie theaters. And, and I've been, you know, I've been <laughs> yeah. researching this or you know, talking about this or working in this business for over 20 years. And I've never seen the, the press cover movie theaters more. At a moment in which apparently you know, no one cares and no one goes to the movies Every five minutes, there's another article about people aren't going to movie theaters or people are going to movie theaters in droves um, or people are back in the movie theaters because there's something, there's something nostalgic and effective and emotional for most people about movie theaters. Most people, even if you're not a movie lover, you went to the movies as a kid. So they're primal. You know, they're, they're this, this place. They're not a bank. They're not a fast food restaurant. They're not, even, they're not even, you know, a hotel. They're a movie theater, which means that they have all the ability to to warm your heart and scare the hell out of you. And there are places that you have a lot of memories. So I think when the pandemic hit, a lot of people, things that people love to do, they, they couldn't do anymore, right? They couldn't go to certain places and suddenly they were at home. And then even when things reopen, a lot of people just have not gone back to the movie theater or they go, but it feels a little different to them. And I think everyone is remembering that this is something that they, was a quotidian part of their, of their life. And so there's a lot of anxiety about it. And what's making that anxiety worse is, what the heck is Hollywood doing in terms of distribution? Are they actually giving movies to movie theaters? Because it's, it's, there's not enough content. I'm not the, I mean, this is a, 
this article has been written every five minutes these days, there's not enough theatrical content for theatrical exhibition. And so it's not just that people aren't necessarily going, there's only one kind of film really being shown for the most part, it's usually blockbusters, franchises, um, high concept films. And then there's just, even if you just took that, there are now huge parts of the slate that are open for a whole month where there's barely anything people will go see. So to summarize a very long-winded answer, um, China is one problem, uh, content's another, corporate changes, streaming services, economic recessions and booms. It's just, everything's kind of, I think, a little up in the air. Ross Melnick's Hollywood Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World, is out now from Columbia University Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Hilary A. Hallett and Ross Melnick and to Cordelia Calvert at Liverite and Norton, and Joanne Raymond at Columbia University Press. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Oh, yes, rather.